2: About 20 surfers bob gently on their boards on the Pacific swells off Santa Cruz. They're in a circle, holding hands. This is how surfers say farewell to a missing companion, to one of their own. They are mourning Chris Smith. They haven't had a traditional funeral. There is no body to bury. His family and friends feel this surfer's ritual, a stone's throw from the Smith family's Kelly Lake home, is a more fitting goodbye. It's October 22nd, 2011, two months since the Smith family got the call telling them that Chris was dead. So they've all come out here to the waters where Chris used to surf.
3: And what was really cool that God did is the day before, it was a terrible stormy, cloudy day. And the next morning we woke up, it was clear, not a cloud in the sky. The, the sea was flat, except for the dolphins and mm. birds out there. And all they went out and did the paddle out, it was beautiful.
2: For the Smith family, their faith provides the solace they need. The song they've selected is Jars of Clay's cover of Julie Miller's Haunting All My Tears. It captures the family's conviction that bones and flesh are unimportant. Chris's body was just a temporary home.
4: And so it's just such a kind of prophetic song, you know, to what's turned out. So we don't have anything, nobody, but we know where he is and we'll see him again.
2: On this bittersweet day, the Smith family gets some of the closure they need. But to see justice done to Ed Shin for murdering Chris, for that, they have to wait seven years before he goes to trial. I'm Matt Gutman, and this is 2020's Cutthroat Inc. It's Tuesday morning, November 13th, 2018. At 4.30 in the morning, Ed Shin is awakened. He showers and shaves. A corrections van shuttles him the three miles to Orange County's courthouse. Ed has been in jail for more than seven years now, since the day he was pulled off a plane at Los Angeles International Airport and arrested. The charge is murder one, premeditated homicide. The prosecution says Ed deserves the harshest punishment the law allows. They say he murdered Chris so he could take his money. The penalty for that is life without the possibility of parole. In legal circles, the shorthand for that is LWAP. There's no bail for someone facing such a serious charge, so Ed has been behind bars since 2011. Ed has hoped this day would never come. He did his best to talk his way out of this trial with the story that it was just a fight gone bad, that Chris was responsible for his own accidental death, and that Ed was only defending himself. Those stories got no traction with prosecutor Matt Murphy and his team, but you could say that Ed's effort did earn their grudging respect.
4: If, if you could have lying as an Olympic sport, he's the gold medalist on the planet Earth right now. I mean, it's just every single person that he engages in or gets involved in, Shin tells one lie after another after another, and depending on how much money or what he can get out of them, they get more sophisticated, and, you know, that's what he does. He is a liar.
2: When talking fails, Ed's lawyers make one last attempt to reduce the charges, a trade. The offer is presented to Debbie and Steve Smith.
0: deal they want to make, but they don't call it a deal. They call it a hypothetical, saying that they have Mm -hmm. no personal knowledge of it, don't know if it could come true or not. But Mm -hmm. if the defendant could uh, find the remains of our son and the parents could have possession of their body, would we be willing to decrease the charges against our client? And we said, absolutely not. Was it Mm worth it? No, he's gone away.
2: Matt Murphy is just as determined to put Ed Shin away, and for good. And the idea that Ed knows where Chris is, but won't say unless there's something in it for him, it just adds zeal to Murphy's commitment. He could only shake his head at how calculating and cold-blooded Ed Shin is. So, if you were to boil this case down into the simplest terms, how would you characterize it?
4: Uh, Ruthless, diabolical greed to the extreme. I mean, that's really what this boils down to.
2: For Murphy, this trial is also a professional milestone. It'll be the last murder of his career as a prosecutor. After two decades, he's going into private practice— One of his jobs will be to work with us at ABC News as a consultant. In the past 20 years, he has never lost a felony case, and he didn't want this case to be the first one.
0: Again, good morning, and jury service is very important, and I would like to welcome you and thank you for your service. Before we begin, I'm going to describe for
2: you how the trial will be conducted. Orange County's courthouse is a no-nonsense building. Lots of concrete and glass. Reporters buzz when Steve and Paul Smith, Chris's father and brother, stride into the courtroom. Ed's parents, they're in the back, eyes downcast. Ed's dad, James, seems stoic. His mother, Jennifer, though, she seems devastated her face etched with permanent grief. Ed is at the end of a long table. He looks every inch the prosperous businessman he once was. Dark suit, Prada glasses. At the other end is Matt Murphy. As the representative of the state of California, it is his job to prove that Chris is dead, that Ed killed him, and that it was murder. In his opening statement, Murphy doesn't start with a story of a crime. No, he wants jurors to meet a real person.
4: I want to introduce you to uh, an individual. This is a, uh, a person named Chris Smith. Mr. Smith um, grew up in Watsonville. He began surfing at the age of eight. Um, he became a professional wakeboarder right out of high school. They lived on a, on a lake called Kelly Lake.
2: He shows them slides of Chris, happy and full of life, and family pictures, too.
4: He had a brother named Paul, who you're going to meet in this case, uh, and they were very close. He played some sports in high school, but really his, his true passion was surfing.
2: Murphy wants the jury to see Ed as a person as well, a man with a terrible weakness.
4: Mr. Shin, I believe the evidence is going to show throughout this, is a is an affable, charming articulate guy, tends to make a good impression on people. Mr. Shin had a taste for the finer things. He would stay at the the Wynn Hotel and Casinos, the Encore of the Wynn, I think the nicest hotel out there.
2: And he had a penchant for craps. Ed lost far more at the tables than anyone imagined. That was the reason he embezzled from Joe Gray. And now he was broke again, and he desperately needed money to pay Gray the restitution that would keep him out of jail. Who stood between Ed and that money? Chris Smith.
4: Evidence is going to show Ed Shin did it. He benefited financially. He did it to accomplish his financial gains.
2: And we're going to prove it. Murphy says stealing other people's money was something Ed had done before. The first witness is living proof.
4: Joseph Gray, last name was spelled G-R-A-Y.
2: Joe Gray recounts how Ed embezzled from his company, got caught, and was on the hook to pay back hundreds of thousands of dollars. He testifies he told the court back then he thought Ed had no conscience and was capable of anything. He told me that during the sentencing phase of that embezzlement case, he sent a letter to the judge.
4: And uh, I remember writing a letter that I was able to then read at sentencing. And and I said things like, you know, Ed can't help himself. He's a sociopath. He's going to be back in this court next
2: time someone's going to get hurt. These were things I wrote in this in this letter to the court, which was read into the public record. Why did you think that Ed would escalate from say embezzlement to something else in which someone would get hurt. The level of
4: betrayal to a friend, someone who had supposedly earned his loyalty, someone who he said to at one point, no one's ever done for me the kind of things you've done for me, Joe, I'm really grateful. I mean, to have a person like that flip and do these terrible things... There's something inherently wrong with that individual. This is not a healthy individual. This is a sociopath.
2: What Joe Gray wrote in the sentencing phase of the case years earlier is the point Matt Murphy is now making, that no bond of friendship or loyalty could protect someone who was between Ed Shin and something he wanted. D.A. Murphy's second witness is a former employee of the 800 Exchange. She tells the jury about what it was like to work with Ed and Chris. The trips to Vegas. Ed's gambling. She tells the court that while Chris was free-spirited, he wasn't the kind of guy who'd get into a fight. The first day's final witness is Steve Smith. He tells the jury about his son and their family. Chris kept in touch a week rarely went by without a call or an email. He says the family wasn't alarmed when they heard that Chris had taken off because, you know, he would disappear from time to time. But those emails weren't like him.
0: And then he uh, all of a sudden be up and down, kind of a roller coaster ride right? for us. Yeah, he was very depressed after a while, became a stage suicidal, thinking he was going kind to of kill himself,
5: taking drugs. Uh, then all of a sudden he'd get happy again.
2: After the email stopped coming, Steve says he and Debbie started to try to find their son. One thing Steve did was talk to Ed, who told him that story of Chris doing drugs, the fake passport, sailing away with Tiffany Taylor, the money he'd sent to him via Cayman Islands accounts. Murphy asks Steve what happened to Chris's money. After all, he owned nearly half of a successful multi-million dollar company. Murphy hopes the jury will quickly conclude that not only did Ed kill Chris, but he cleaned him out.
4: Have you ever been contacted by any financial institution, any sort of uh, entity of any kind saying we have assets of some sort and we were looking for either Chris Smith or his heirs?
5: No. Okay.
4: As far as you, as you know, as you sit there now, have you ever received a dime from anybody concerning... Um, Assets formerly owned by your son no. I have nothing further.
2: On the trial's second day, Murphy calls the woman the Smith family believed for months had sailed away with Chris on a yacht. The woman we know as Tiffany Taylor, Galapagos Tiffany. She says the whole Chris and Tiffany Ocean getaway story was a lie that she knew nothing about. She'd never been on any boat with a Chris Smith. Chris's former lawyer, Ernesto Aldover, then tells of the strange emails he got, the ones supposedly documenting Chris's selling of his share of the 800 exchange to Ed. Then Chris's brother, Paul, talks about all the things Chris had to live for.
0: We were both really happy to be together.
4: Um, He was excited to be close to me and to my girls, he really loved my daughters. So he was um, just—it was a good time. We we surfed a lot. Um, just had great memories being with the girls on the beach with my parents, my wife. Um, we always wanted to work together,
2: be successful
0: together. You know, his. Dream he was-
2: says it was in Chris's character to disappear now and again but not for very long, and not to stay gone.
4: Uh, sir, given your relationship with your brother, Mr. Smith, it's a characteristic that he would disappear for eight years and not communicate with you, your mom, your dad, his girlfriend, your nieces, your wife, or anybody else in your family.
2: No, he would never do that. It sounds strange, but with no body, Murphy does have to convince the jury that Chris Smith is actually dead. Over the next few days, Murphy introduces the forensics experts who have determined from the physical evidence that Chris must be dead. They describe finding blood all over Suite 123 and even in the hidden recesses of Chris's Range Rover. The DNA tests prove the blood was Chris's, and according to investigators, the amount of it in Suite 123 doesn't leave much room for doubt about the fate of the person who, from whose veins it flowed. Then they link Ed Shin to Chris's disappearance. Their maps of the locations of Ed Shin's cell phones show several trips to remote corners of the California desert on the nights after Chris was last seen. A police computer expert tells how he determined that the Chris emails were really sent from Ed Shin's computers. As his last witness, Murphy calls Orange County investigator Don Vogt, the guy who pulled Ed off that plane at LAX. Vogt's also one of the many who combed hundreds of square miles of desert for Chris's remains. We spent roughly 10 hours out there searching. We started early in the morning and we finished, I think it was like 5 or 6 o'clock in the evening. And
4: fair to say, the, the search was unsuccessful. Christmas remains were never found. Is that right? That's correct. correct. And to this day, um, are you aware of his remains turning up anywhere in the world? No, no, I'm not. Okay. Are you aware of anybody speaking mm-hmm. to, talking to, or seeing Chris Smith? No. I'm not. Thanks.
2: With the end of votes testimony, Matt Murphy rests his case. For four days, Ed Shin and his defense team have had to wait. They've had to listen as Matt Murphy built his case. The wait is now over. It's their turn. They mean to present a different way of looking at the evidence, a way that casts doubt on the picture that Murphy has painted.
1: Your role in this case is to be impartial judges of the facts. You can't be swayed by the emotion or pity for Chris's family, who you've met, for Chris. For my client or his family. That's not your role. That's,
2: your role. That's one of Ed Shin's lawyers, Ed Wellborn. He's considered one of the best defense lawyers in California, if not the country. He starts by admitting that his client could be a better human being. Wellborn doesn't dispute that Chris is dead, nor that Ed was there when he died. He admits that Ed's behavior after Chris died was horrible. But Ed's being tried for murder... That, Wellborn says, Ed Shin did not do. So he's counting on the jury to stay focused on the issue at hand.
1: Emails, for example, other things that have gone on. And to sit and be impartial, you're going to have to separate those things. I'm not saying don't consider the facts, but the emotion that comes with those things. You've got to be able to do that. And again, evaluate the facts of this case, putting everything else emotion-wise aside.
2: Wellborn was a prosecutor himself. He knows the power of a narrative. He explains to the jury that Ed's story of a fight gone bad fits with the forensics. And he says a fight gone bad is not murder. And while he says he doesn't want to, quote, insult or disparage Chris or his memory in any way... Wellborn says he's got a witness who will show them a side of Chris Smith the prosecution didn't mention. It's Chris's ex-girlfriend, Erica. Wellborn tells the jury what Erica told Orange County's investigators when they first started looking into the case.
1: She thought and thinks Chris was a liar. And she believed a pathological liar. That was her opinion. And he would say things uh, that seemed weird, things that were off. To her all the time, constantly. For example, she said his dad was in the CIA or FBI. And she knew that wasn't true. He was a fireman. You met him. He said he was a fireman. He just kind of lied about that, exaggerated about things. Everything was always very a life or death situation for him. Always like it's the end of the world.
2: Wellborn wants to use what Erica said to police to paint Chris as a guy completely capable of flying off the handle and attacking Ed Shin. So he has subpoenaed her to affirm that she really did say that he was a liar, moody, and volatile. Erica has no choice. She has to comply. But she tells Matt Murphy when he cross-examines her that she wouldn't have said half the things she'd told investigators if she hadn't felt so angry and betrayed. She does have one choice. She can refuse to allow her testimony to be recorded, which she does. And that's why you're not hearing it. Edshin also has a choice. He can decide not to take the stand. But here's where Matt Murphy's strategy seems to pay off. There is a tape of Ed telling investigators Don Vogt and Ray Wirt the whole story about fighting with Chris and how Chris fell and died by accident. You heard it in the last episode, but the jury has never heard it. And that's because Matt Murphy never introduced that tape into evidence, not even Ed's admission that Chris was dead. Murphy wants the jury to conclude Chris is dead, given his disappearance and all that blood. And there's a reason why Murphy decided to present the case this way. The tape is considered prosecution evidence. So if Matt Murphy doesn't play it, the defense can't. Strategically,
4: if I don't play that, if he wants his self-serving, self-defense thing to come into evidence, it means he's got to hit the stand, which means I can cross-examine him.
2: And that's exactly what happens
4: you solemnly swear the testimony you're about to give in the cause now pending before this court shall be the truth, the whole
5: truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. I do. Will you please state your name for the record and display your last name for everybody? It's Edward Shin, S-H-I-N.
2: His lawyer, Ed Wilburn, begins to walk him through his story.
1: He made a move towards my throat. Did he place his hands on you? Yes. Where? on my throat.
2: So the fight gone bad. The battering ramps who spattered blood on the ceiling.
5: So that's when I think as he was making a move to jump, I think I kind of went up too to try to just catch him mid-air and it was almost like a, a like a mid-air collision. <laughs>
2: um, Chris was the aggressor. Ed was merely defending himself. It was a terrible accident.
1: What were you doing during that time? Crying.
5: Trying to figure out what I was going to do. Thinking about how my life was over.
2: A panicky cover-up, not to conceal a crime, but to buy time for a shocked and disoriented guy just to think. He testifies about hiring a cleaner, someone whose name he says he never learned. And I handed him the Google map and the money. He said, "Okay, we'll take care of it. Those trips he took to the desert, Ed says, those weren't to dispose of a body like Matt Murphy supposed. They were driven by his own despair. He was ready to end his own life or just disappear. The emails he sent pretending to be Chris, he admits that wasn't his best moment. But Ed seems to contend the Smiths weren't the only victims. Keeping up the charade was hard on him, too, he says.
5: It was getting too hard to, ma- to manage, and then from both a uh, physical standpoint and an emotional standpoint. And it was one of the, it was breaking me down physically and emotionally. First of all, it was probably the most awful thing I ever did in my life.
2: And, At the end know, of Ed's story, Wellborn wraps things up by emphasizing his most crucial point. This was not premeditated murder. Chris picked a fight. Ed was defending himself.
1: Did you ever plan or intend to get into a fight with Chris on June 4, 2010? No. Did you ever have any... sort of
2: In all, it takes three days on the stand for Ed to get through every detail of what he says happens the afternoon and evening of June 6th, 2010. He hopes he's managed to cast doubt, reasonable doubt, on the story Matt Murphy presented. If just one of the jurors believes him, then his gamble will pay off. But bad wagers are part of the reason Ed got into trouble in the first place. Now he is literally betting the rest of his life that his version can survive Matt Murphy's cross examination. Murphy hasn't looked at Ed very often. He mostly just jots notes in his yellow legal pad, his body angled away from the stand. Now that Ed Shin has taken the stand, any contradictions between his testimony and what he told Orange County investigators is fair game. Case in point, the office is coated with Chris's blood, but curiously, none of Ed's. How did that happen? Okay.
4: They further asked you during the fight, did you bleed at all? And your answer was no, I'm kind of trained to be able to defend myself. Remember that? Yes. Okay, Mr. Shin, they asked you that question. And you said, I'm trained. How are, you, how are you trained not to bleed when somebody sit, hits you so hard you think you're going to fall into a door? In other words, can you train your skin not to bleed? <clears throat> no. Okay.
2: How could such a violent, lethal fight have started and ended so quickly? It had to have started after the staff went home, but by 6.01 p.m., it was over. That's when Ed, pretending to be Chris, actually sent a carefully crafted email to Chris's lawyer to transfer ownership of their company yeah. to Ed.
4: So your first thought in this panic state was—I mean, I guess it would have been after you see him in a fetal position on the floor—was, "I can now get insurance and stuff," right? No. Well, that's what this email accomplishes, right? Yes.
2: Okay. Ed's lawyers had tried to excuse the emails as bad decisions made in panic. But Murphy makes sure the jury knows that Ed was certainly thinking clearly about Chris's money. And that email to Erica, that wasn't just Ed covering his tracks, it was cruel.
4: Would you agree with me, sir, that there are about a thousand nice ways that you can break up with another person that you're in a relationship with? Would you agree? Yes. Okay. And you wrote her an email saying, I don't love you anymore, and I'm leaving to go to the Galapagos Islands, right?
5: Something to that effect, yes. Okay.
4: And obviously, Mr. Shin, you know that for any human being who gets an email like that, they're going to be brokenhearted. Fair to
1: say?
2: Yes. The Ed Shin that Murphy presents to the jury isn't just dishonest. The emails to Erica and the Smith family reveal him to be manipulative and heartless.
4: There's a million different ways that you can write to those people and suggest to them how their son, who they love, died, right? Yes. Okay, and the way you chose to do this, Mr. Shin, was you sent an email to his parents, to his loving mother and father, suggesting that he was suicidal because of them, right? Right. No. Okay. Let's, let's read it together. You know he's going to die, in other words. You know he's not coming home, right? Yes. And you can write all kinds of nice things to those folks so that they spend the rest of their lives thinking, at least he died happy, right? Yes. Okay. Instead-
2: Ed also insists he has no idea what happened to Chris's body. It ended up in the hands of that mysterious cleaner.
4: He makes the body disappear, right? Yes. Okay. No idea where that body went, Mr. Shin? That's your testimony to these people? Yes. Okay. Now, when Steve
2: Smith... Ed's whole defense depends on the jury thinking his story of a fight gone wrong might be true. An autopsy would settle the question. For that, you need a body. Murphy is certain that Ed knows where Chris's body is and he continues to edge Ed into a corner.
4: As the dust settled in your mind and you started thinking about this and you realized that this body, Mr. Smith's body um, if he had an injury consistent with that on his skull, that'd be something very important to proving your
5: story right? That was not thought in my mind Surely it had to occur to
4: you. He's going to have a skull fracture and it's going to match the story. It's going to match the corner of the desk. We talked about that yesterday. Didn't didn't you you think about that? I tried my best not to think about it at all. So if your story is true, then of course, um, that body is what exonerates you, right? Yes. Okay. Somewhere out there in the world... There's a human skull belonging to Chris not that human skull can demonstrate the truth of your story. Right? Yes. Okay.
2: Murphy has been building to this moment. He seems to call Ed's bluff.
4: Mr. Shin, we have a forensic pathologist standing by. They have all the forensic exhumation tools with them. I'm going to give you one chance here. Take the blue marker, circle on the map where you
5: put Chris Smith. I cannot.
4: Okay, last chance, Mr. Shin. There's the marker. Show us where the body is. Last chance. Because in the last nine years, it did not occur to you that that body proved to these people the
5: veracity of your story. It didn't occur to you. Am I right? nine years it has. Okay, but I can't do anything about
2: it. Okay. Later on, Ed's lawyers complained that putting him on the spot like that was a stunt. Matt Murphy says the team was there.
4: And We had a uh, San Diego County certified cadaver dog uh, named Karma, of all things. I mean, the irony of that, Karma. And so Karma was out there with her handler mm-hmm. and, and some sheriff's deputies. They had all the, the tools for forensic exhumation, and we had a pathologist on standby. And the defense, you know, he said, oh, this is just a ruse. It was not a ruse. Those people were waiting out there for two
2: very... cold. Some prosecutors drown jurors in technicalities. Matt Murphy has punctuated his case with drama, and he hopes ample proof that while there is no body, no murder weapon, and no forensic evidence linking Ed to the crime, Ed had to have murdered Chris, that it was premeditated, and that he did it for the most selfish of reasons. And somewhere
4: out there right now, in between a couple of bushes in the sand, there's a grave. (coughs) It's a little older every year. And Chris Smith's battered skull is sitting there, and we will probably never find it. We're never going to find his money. We're never going to find his gold. That guy took everything that he had. And then he bashed him and defamed him to his family, to his girlfriend, to the co-workers. Took his life, ruined his memory. He wants to get away with it. The evidence here, ladies and gentlemen, is overwhelming. This is really important. It's not a vol, voluntary manslaughter. It's not a second. It's a first-degree murder. He did it for the money. Folks, I, I implore you, hold him accountable for that.
2: With that, Murphy's last murder case goes to the jury.
5: People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's
3: a Hannibal Lecter feel to him.
5: For chilling true crime stories. Follow the True
2: Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. Forty minutes. Forty minutes is all it takes for the jury to decide. Of
0: view, please, if you please read the first
2: Superior Court of California, County of Orange, Central Justice Center. After nearly nine years and nine days of trial, it comes down to this. Verdict.
3: We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Edward Younghoon Shin, guilty of the crime of felony, to it violation of Section 187, parenthesis A of the penal code of the state of California, murder, as charged in count one of the information.
2: Guilty. First degree murder. There's only one question now. Does the jury believe Ed murdered Chris for financial gain?
3: Finding. We, the jury, in the above
0: entitled action, find it to be true that the special circumstance exists to wit, murder during the commission of the crime of murder. Ladies and gentlemen, was that your verdict and was that your finding?
2: Again, guilty. Even with no body, no murder weapon, no security camera video, it was no problem for the jury. They found him guilty. Ed Shin drops his head into his hands. In the back of the courtroom, Ed's father closes his eyes. His mother sobs. Her shoulders heave, but she makes no sound. And there, too, are the Smiths. Steve, Paul, Leah, and Debbie. Debbie.
3: Yeah, and I was grateful. My feeling when the verdict was read is, is a very total relief is that he's going to be somewhere where he can't hurt anybody else again. Because there was a little bit of a fear of like, oh, if he gets out, you
2: know. For prosecutor Matt Murphy and his team, it's bringing some sense of justice to the Smith family that matters.
3: Yeah,
4: of course, no family should ever have to go through something like this. And this family has put up with so much. And the court process takes a very long time. And we are incredibly grateful for the hard work that the jury did. Uh, they clearly got it. And uh, yeah, we just hope that this can bring some semblance of peace to this family. Um, you know, Mr. Smith was uh, was a nice guy, and shouldn't shouldn't have had this happen to him. And the family went through hell and. The jury did the right thing, and we're incredibly grateful for that.
2: It will be more than six months before Ed Shin comes back to the Orange County Courthouse for his sentencing. I ask for an interview with him, but first, he wants to meet one-on-one. The facility considers my first visit personal. The rules are strict. I'm not allowed to bring in a camera, a tape recorder, or a cell phone, not even pen and paper. At the Theo Lacey facility, guests walk through concrete tunnels to their assigned meeting rooms. An elderly lady walks next to me. We chat. Her son is waiting to see her. Turns out Ed Shin is sitting right next to him. They're okay with each other. In fact, Ed's cool with most folks in the prison. By now, he's an old-timer. And there he is, waiting patiently for our talk. Forty-five minutes later, I rush back to my car to record my impressions. Okay, just had uh, my first meeting with Ed Shin, and uh, it's not what I expected. He was... He looked remarkably healthy. Um, He was wearing designer glasses. Um, He was remarkably articulate, surprisingly alert, funny, engaging... Especially since when you walk in, it's, it's after waiting two hours, long concrete corridors. And right before you get to him, there was a guy with tattoos up to his eyelids. Uh, I actually spoke to his mother. And then there's Ed Shin in these jails. And there he is just sitting calmly, waiting for me. Um, polite, understanding, engaging. Um, and again, just shockingly healthy looking. After that meeting, Ed started calling me. He sends letters, sometimes even poems. One of them was called Storms by Ed Shin. He writes, There is one small opening, one little hole, where to which I will crawl, claw, slap, kick to, my one last chance to take back my soul. We talk about our family some, but mostly about the world he's no longer a part of. In one of the calls, I'm in Vancouver, and he talks about skiing at Whistler in the Canadian Rockies. A couple of days before he is due to be sentenced, Ed is trying to work out what he should say at the hearing. What are you going to say? I'm not sure yet. It's hard to really
5: express your remorse when everyone's saying they're sorry. Maybe you say just
2: that. When the day arrives, the people he would have to express remorse to, however, aren't in the courtroom. The Smith family was here for the verdict. That was enough for them. Steve did write an impact statement to be read in court. A court official reads it aloud.
0: All areas of our lives have been affected by anxiety, depression, problems, sleeping, trusting in people, health problems, and finances. My wife, my son, Paul, and I have aged in the last 8.5 years than the rest of our lives combined. I look into the eyes of my wife, Debbie, and my son and will forever see the joy that was stolen from
2: us. Then it comes time for Ed's parents to speak. His father asks the judge to give his son a chance to redeem himself. This
4: incident is a tremendous tragedy to our two families. I beg the court to show Edward Mercy just one chance to earn his freedom through service and atonement. What good is there for another life to be lost?
2: Next, Ed's mother, Jennifer, her face is streaked with tears already. She blames herself for pulling her son away from the path of selfless service she says he wanted to follow.
3: After
4: college... Edward wants wants to be a pastor, so he could lead children's ministry. He was looking to apply to Fuller Seminary School, but I asked him to work in law school instead. I know he wouldn't be here if I didn't ask him to change his decision. So I haven't blamed myself for a long time. And I
0: have.
2: It is gut-wrenching to hear this doting mother, her face contorted by anguish, Ed, the Korean mom's American boy. He was the one to make all the dreams of a promised land come true for his immigrant parents. But in truth, they would spend years standing by him while he was in trouble with the law who is really responsible for the murder her son committed, she blames herself.
3: I beg of you
4: to give Edward one chance.
2: Then, finally, it's Ed's turn to make his statement. A few days earlier, he had talked with me about taking responsibility.
5: Nothing, nothing excuses the fact that I committed despicable acts against the Smith family and devastated my own family as a result. So, I I must make this point clear. I am not a victim here, even in a wrongful condition. Regardless of what.
2: Even now, Ed has his own version of what happened. In his version, he's a tragic character.
5: There are those who have told me that I've suffered enough these past eight years. But if I am to show true remorse for what I've done, then I must offer more. So, I will ask this court to show me no mercy. I must bear the responsibility of doing so many awful things. And if it means a life of physical suffering, so be it. God put me on this earth to serve him, and gave me every opportunity, talent, to tend to a sheep. Instead, I chose the path of a wolf. For that, I must
2: pay. The path of the wolf. Ed falls on his sword. Or does he? In the courtroom, we begin to wonder if this is just another ruse, a play for sympathy. After a recess, Judge Greg Prickett begins by acknowledging... Ed's mother's anguish.
0: Mrs. Shin, I heard your comment very clearly, and although you and I come from different backgrounds, we are both parents. With a mother's heart, I'm sure you regret what happened, but you are not responsible for what happened um, at, at that moment. And I see, can't help but notice that your son is nodding his head in affirmation of that, that... you. This should not be your burden to carry. Right?
2: But that kindness so, to Ed's mother was the only clemency the judge sees fit to grant Ed Shin.
0: The jury's finding that the defendant was the direct perpetrator of this crime and that the crime was intentional. All of those lead the court to believe that the imposition of the special circumstance allegation for financial gain is both factually and under the Eighth Amendment and the corresponding provision of the California Constitution, a constitutional sentence. The court will sentence the defendant then to life without possibility of parole.
2: Hearing that LWAP, the maximum sentence, Ed sinks his head into his hands and sobs. Minutes later, the courtroom is empty, and Ed is in a van headed back to the Orange County Jail. The next morning, I have an appointment at the jail. This time for a formal interview with microphones and a camera. Imagine it was a pretty hard night for you. Yes. How are you doing?
5: I'm in the process of uh, processing, I guess. it's the best word I can come up with at this point. But a small part of me is relieved because there's some closure now. And now I can move on to the next chapter of my life. So...
2: I had hoped that Ed might have done some soul-searching. When I was talking to him on the phone, he had sounded so sincere, shockingly candid, in fact, about taking responsibility. But was that just another con? I didn't expect his story to change much, but now that it's all over, I have to ask. And so how did he die? He died when I pretty much shoved him
5: into the desk much later, and he hit his head
2: that's the fight gone bad story his jury unanimously concluded was a lie I admit part of me entertained that shadow of a doubt that Ed was hoping the jury would buy into when he spoke his eyes conveyed just the right amount of shame the way he hung his head it all seemed so sincere he was open about all the terrible things he admitted to except for one where's Chris's body? I don't know And this person, we don't even have to have a name, never told you what they were doing with it? I never asked. There's no... Why would? What's the point of knowing? It would seem that at this point, Ed has nothing to lose and maybe, maybe something to gain by giving up the location of Chris's body. It might show he was capable of empathy, that he was trying to repair the damage he had done. You know, in, in, in some ways, you killed Chris... Then you faked his identity, and now you're holding the location of his body. I'm not holding it because I don't know it. There's no way I can get to that at this
5: point. It's, and there's no way that I'm going to do it. it. I'm sorry. I, you know, I wish I could. You know, I wish I could tell you more, but it's just not something that I can talk about. And I know that's probably what everybody wants to know, right? Well,
2: Even now, Ed's story is changing again. He is now portraying himself as a victim of injustice. It's, it
5: was such an emotionally charged case to begin with, and I've always been the bad guy. And I've never had it, an opportunity to just speak up and say, look, it's not, as, it's not what everyone
2: else makes it out to be. He hints that he's a martyr of sorts, that he's protecting a secret. What's the so that this is not just another lie? Because why? What's the point of it? I don't know.
5: Exactly. There's some, you know, there's something bigger that I just can't talk about. And Maybe I'm, it's a bargaining chip for the future. Although no, one would think they would have used it. There is no. There no. It's not. You know, you have to think about it. If someone's willing to give up his life to protect a secret, there's a reason, right? And that, and that's, you know, that's as far as I'll go with it.
2: It's infuriating and frustrating and only a minuscule fraction of what the Smith family has dealt with all these years. I come back at him again. Does't make any sense.
5: I'm sorry. I know you're a reporter and you want all the answers, but sometimes they just not always there.
2: For nearly a year, I get calls from Ed during my travels for ABC News. I always try to answer. Oh Matt. Hey, Ed, how are you? I'm all right. In early August of 2019, he calls to alert me that he's finally being shipped from jail to prison. It seems he's almost relieved. A lot of people don't,
5: some, most people tend to be afraid of change, but given my circumstance, you know, I think a little change is not a bad thing. Um, you know, I'm certainly apprehensive about what prison is going to be like, but at the same time, I'm going to be very busy with uh, multiple things. You know, I'm not afraid of going, but, so yeah, just,
2: but I'm waiting, tired of waiting. A <laughs> Couple of weeks later, Ed is transferred to a California state prison. He has filed an appeal seeking to overturn his conviction. He holds a sliver of hope that one day he may be free. He sends me letters from time to time. I try to write back. He says he's learning the ways of prison. Seems content, in a way. He tells me about his Samoan roommate, how many burpees he does a day. We're both parents, and he talks about how his kids are growing up without him, and that one day he hopes to see them again. I've asked him again about Chris's body. The investigators are all convinced it is out in the desert somewhere, And that Ed knows where it is. It's hard to figure out what he's thinking. The only game Ed has to play is the long game. Somehow convincing the people he has hurt that he has changed. To do that will take years. Which he has. Elwap, life without the possibility of parole. In prison, it means the same as eternity. In the end, it could be that the only person who truly believes Ed Shin's version of events is Ed Shin. Maybe Matt Murphy puts it best.
4: You get a guy who is, um, I mean, self-centered is almost a cliche, but the whole world exists to
2: serve Ed Ed Shin. And not just self-centered, manipulative. And in one of those prison letters to me, it gets a little creepy. It offers a restaurant recommendation. It just happens to be a couple of blocks from my home. I've never given Ed my address. His letters go to my office in the Los Angeles Bureau. Yep, I get it. You know where I live. Ten years since Chris's trip around the world that wasn't, the what-ifs continue to haunt Steve and Debbie. If you could go back and do something over again, would you? And what would it be?
3: I mean, in this case, how, what?
0: Run a uh, Google Ed Chen.
3: Yeah. Investigate him. Investigate him. And never let Chris speak. I would say, no, we Google this guy, and that he's bad, so don't go into business. He probably wouldn't have. Yeah. Hindsight? Yeah. You know, investigate. And that's why now, we're, we just, oh, gosh, got to run everything by a detective like Joe DeLiro. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. mm-hmm.
2: Well,
3: now, he's a part of the family, too. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah.
2: Where Chris's mortal remains are is still a mystery. It's almost certain that Chris ended up somewhere in the desert. You might hear the buzz of a far-off plane or chirp of a bird or two. But it's the wind you notice most. It whips away the moisture from your face. And over time, it seems to wipe away tracks. Pretty much anything that doesn't grow out of this sort is one of the many secrets this desert conceals the answer to the question, what really happened in Suite 123? For Steve and Debbie Smith, there is no mystery. They know exactly where their son is.
3: Chris is in heaven. We know that. You know, we feel his spirit with us all the time, so... Whatever is in that desert is not Chris. No. 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 He's in heaven. He's up and out.
2: It's been there for a long time, enjoying Mm it. Yeah. Steve and Debbie Smith still live in Bend, Oregon. Paul and Leah Smith live there, too. What haunts Paul and Leah and their kids isn't the what-ifs. It's the family boogeyman, Ed Shin.
1: You can live life with not so much as a speeding ticket, and then all of a sudden this freight train of destruction and lies just comes barreling through. Like, he took that ability to live in, like, peace and safety in your own home.
2: Back in Orange County, well, it still gets nearly 300 days of sunshine a year. Some of the folks who work the Ed Shin case have retired to enjoy that sunshine. For others, life just goes on. Don Vogt is now the sergeant in charge of all Orange County's homicide investigators. His partner, Ray Word has retired. Sergeant Louise Caloose, she's retired too. She left the force a few years ago. She still rides those Harley-style bikes. She enjoys taking cruises and also volunteers in the community. Julia Bowman is still in Orange County, still a cop, a sergeant now in the Seal Beach Police Department. She married a fellow cop, in fact, the former narcotics detective who did her a solid by going to Suite 123 to test the blood there. They now have two small children. Joe DeLu is still a private investigator. His work with the Smith family turned into a long-term friendship. They are in constant touch and even take vacations together. For Joe Gray, it took years to regain what he had lost as a result of Ed's embezzlement. But he's gone on to build another successful company. Ed Chin's wife, she divorced him not long after he was arrested. She's remarried now. She and the children moved away from California. After one last felony case, Matt Murphy left the prosecutor's office with his perfect conviction record intact. He's in private practice now and continues to work with ABC News as a consultant. Cutthroat Inc. is a production of ABC Audio and 2020. Reported by me, Matt Gutman. Written by me and our producer, Richard O'Regan. Produced and edited by Susie Liu and Oluwakemi Aladisui. Additional reporting by producers Tim Gorin, Sonny Antrim. Our editorial producer was Dwan Perrin. Casey Tomchek was our production assistant. Additional support by Lydia Noon, Dana Schaefer. Jenny Goldstein and Marwa Mwaki, mixing and scoring by Evan Viola. Our researchers are Felisa Fine, Natalie Sabitz, and Brad Martin. Special thanks to Josh Cohen and Stacia DeShishku. Terry Lickstein is our executive producer of this podcast, and David Sloan is our senior executive producer of network primetime content. I'm Matt Gutman.